ready to go. We are set to go. The Holy Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul says, let a man examine himself. And I think that's one of the things that we've tried to do during this week is to look at the personality traits that we are born with, both the genetic factors and also the early childhood influences, things that happened to us, things that didn't happen to us, that should have happened to us, but it leaves sometimes a little deficiency in our lives. When we look at family as a system, it's kind of like a pile of puzzle pieces. Those pieces only go in one place. And today, as we look at some of these places, how they fit together, we're going to be looking briefly at birth order, you know, firstborn, secondborn, lastborn. There are certain characteristics that tend to follow people based on their birth order. Now, if I ask, we'll get to it later, but how many of you are firstborn in your family? Okay. Secondborn or middle child. Right. And lastborn. Okay. Now, firstborn females in your family. <laughs> that makes a world of difference. And uh, the different combinations in marriage is, uh, is quite interesting, too. Over the years, we've discovered that uh, there's a certain little secret about uh, marriage compatibility. The firstborn female with younger brothers normally has the best relationship when she marries the youngest male in a family that had older sisters. And that makes for the best combination, according to statistics, in terms of marriage and getting along with each other. The Bible example of personality, frustration, worries. We look at Moses. He had his share of problems. If you went through the early morning session where they talked about temperaments, uh, most of the prophets in the Old Testament were somewhat melancholy. We look at Moses, Elijah. Both of them had their real serious problems. Moses said, why did you give me all these people? Just let me die. There's Elijah, you know, after his uh, Mount Carmel experience, he's rushing off 90 miles away, trying to get away from Jezebel and Ahaz. And, and uh, he falls down under a broom tree and says, Lord, why was I born? Just let me die. So melancholy uh, individuals can go from way down in the low side to way up on the mountaintop like Elijah. And then we have David. David had his share of problems. He was the youngest at that time. And then Peter. We've been studying about First and Second Peter in our Sabbath school lesson. And then Paul comes along, the persecutor of the early church, and he has his road to Damascus experience. And sometimes firstborn people, especially men, almost need a road to Damascus experience to find themselves spiritually where they're at. Here's the... Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 talks about stress and anxiety and worry. Have no anxiety or worry about anything, but in everything by prayer, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts. And it's always about the heart. Did Moses have this personality problem? Moses was arguing with God. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter, God told him. Go up on top of the Mount Pisgah. Look west, north, south, east, and look at the land with your own eyes since you're not going over. 
to cross this Jordan. Did David have his problem? Yep. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. He was going to build a temple, but God had other plans. And then Solomon comes along, his son. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did not have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son. And of course, that was Solomon. He is the one who will build the temple for my name. So David was forbidden. But because it was in his heart to do so, God looks upon the heart. And it's the motive of the heart in which he will judge us. Because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well. This is, uh, this is in, that it's in your heart. 1 Kings 8, 18. Success in life. There is no such thing as, there's no such thing as a journey to success. At a point in which we arrive. It is not a point at which we arrive, but a process that is always ongoing. God has set eternity, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Ecclesiastes 5.19. The work that is given to man is a gift from God to be happy. To be occupied with gladness of heart. Again, that heart shows up. Now, we have different ways of dealing with conflict. Let's look just briefly at them because we won't spend a lot of time on it. Two kinds of warfare. All right. The coal anger. This mostly is where the melancholies kind of come in. And when they get angry or upset, sometimes they go into the old silent treatment. Now, we all know people like that somewhere, don't we? Out there, not here. Uh, what, honey, what's wrong? What's their answer? Nothing, right. We've, we know people like that. And uh, they give the old silent treatment. And sometimes this can go on for days or weeks. And uh, I know one couple one time, they left notes on the refrigerator <laughs> months at a time for each other. And they wouldn't talk to each other. Uh, that's that super melancholy type spirit. And now there's nothing wrong with that. Melancholy people are very creative. Ellen White said she had to fight the melancholy spirit. We know that they are creative. Look what she did in her writings. And then you have the opposite of those people who kind of pull their hair out. When they get angry, everybody is around them, <laughs> run for their life almost. And uh, they let it all out. And then it's over with. And then it's gone. There are 12 stages of bonding. Now, we're going to come back to that in a few moments, but... Uh, when we look at the different personality types, my son-in-law is a graphic art designer. And I told him, I said, uh, you, you know what our personality traits are in terms of the temperaments. Uh, would you draw me a little cartoon that represents each one of those temperaments? And of course, uh, if you in the morning sessions, the young couple that did the marriage thing here, they went through this in great detail. But you can identify exactly by these little cartoon characters. The sanguine, you know, the one with the stars around him. <laughs> Everybody, it's a party waiting to happen almost. And then you have the caloric, the lion type person, as they referenced it, uh, with the weights over his head. And then you have 
the, uh, the melancholy with his flower. <laughs> He's depressed because it's flopping down. And then you have the phlegmatic, the easygoing person. Now, what happens when two lions marry each other or two of these caloric individuals, as Florence Littow calls them, and Gary Smalley, in his book, he calls them by the animal names. Okay, so you have the lion up here, the caloric individual, and you have two, especially if they're firstborn. Remember, I asked about the birth order. Firstborn, two firstborns, you can't have two captains on the same ship, and that's usually where they get into trouble. Two sanguines, it's like a party waiting to happen. Uh, two melancholies, uh, obviously things can get depressed, especially if both of them get depressed on the same day. <laughs> that's really doomsville. And then you have the phlegmatics, the very easygoing people, but they don't like to make decisions. Whatever you want, either way, it doesn't matter to me. They have a hard time making decisions. I know one lady who, uh, she'd go to the shoe store when she was at Forest Lake Academy. She'd go to the shoe store on Friday, buy four or five pairs of shoes, bring them home over the weekend. She's very phlegmatic, couldn't make decisions. And she would try them on <laughs> over the weekend and take four of the five pairs back to the store. And it got to be in that, a little reputation around Forest Lake. When the shoe salesman saw her coming, they would all disappear because she was bringing back the shoes that she didn't keep over the weekend. And so that's kind of the way these temperaments kind of work out. There you have Sanguine, the otter, always happy-go-lucky. There you have the powerful lion-type personality. Paul, by the way, was that individual. And uh, Peter was perhaps this one here. Peter is noted for one thing, and what was it from the Bible? Denial of Christ. In, in Jerusalem, they have excavated uh, the, the temple, or the, I should say the palace of Caiaphas. And the Catholic Church, of course, have built a cathedral over this uh, excavation site, uh, which is known to be actually Caiaphas' uh, palace. And on top of the uh, cathedral, what do you think they have up there? Not a cross, <laughs> a rooster. <laughs> a rooster. I've never seen it in print, but I took a picture of it when we were over there. And so Peter's known for the denial of Christ. There Paul was, his road to Damascus experience. And then you have Moses the melancholy. And uh, we know what all the troubles that he went through. And of course, Abraham was the very peaceful, phlegmatic individual. Abraham and Lot, the, uh, the herdsmen were arguing and fighting with each other. And Abraham said to Lot, he, Lot, if you go this way, we'll go this way. Separate. But if you want to go that way, then we'll go this way, trying to make peace. And that's what they're noted for, basically, is keeping the peace. So, when, when you get to the bottom line of all this, the lion-type person, the caloric, is the rule-maker. They're the type A personality. They're the ones usually in charge, especially if they are firstborn and firstborn female. The melancholies are the rule keepers. Very legalistic almost if you push it to the extreme. Remember, some of these traits that are good, if you push it too far, it becomes a liability. And then you have phlegmatics. The middle of the road, the easiest going people in the world. They don't get upset about too many things. And... and they can disagree with you really politely, but in their mind, they're thinking, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and then you have the sanguine, the rule breakers, always pushing the boundaries. Now, kids, it seems like, go through the teen years like this, and you never quite figure out where they're at, because one day they're one way, and the next day they're the other way. So the sanguines want to be admired, 
Calorics want to be in charge. Melancholies want to be appreciated. And the phlegmatics want to be liked. Here's some little renditions. Uh, Calorics use people to accomplish goals and afterwards ignore them. Phlegmatics study people with haughty indifference and amusement. The melancholies are annoyed by people, but let them go their way, own way anyway. And the sanguines just enjoy people and then forget them. They have lots of friends about that deep. <laughs> the melancholies invent a product because they're very creative. Manufactured by the strong-willed, caloric individual who's in charge, later to be sold by that super sanguine Peter, <laughs> to be enjoyed by that easygoing phlegmatic. To be imitators of Christ, that is our goal when we talk about these, these characteristics of personality and the spiritual gifts. For teenagers nowadays, I wish everyone on the campus was here when we talk about these bonding steps that we go through for the teens. You may, teens may not know what they want to do in life, but they are very sure what they do not want to do in life. Now we look at the difference in the firstborn and the lastborn, and so. Let me jump ahead. I have a young lady here who uh, years ago went through this personality assessment on the personality 16PF that uh, I suggested some of you go to their website, 16PF.com. And you'll see a a 44-page printout of what this uh, inventory, which is used in over 20 languages worldwide, actually says about uh, a person's personality. And from it, you can predict almost in every area of life how this person will live out their life. Unless you let the Holy Spirit temper those rough edges, as Ellen White called them. This young lady, would you come up here, dear? I want you <laughs> to share your little testimony and introduce yourself, dear. Hello, I'm Heather Darnell, and I'm with the group Carolina Heart Song. And we had gone to Romance on the Ranch to do the music for Romance on the Ranch. And while we were there, we we were there to 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 allow God to give a blessing through us. But I think my husband and I received a lot because Ken and Helen Bryant were there doing the seminar, and so they had us all do the 16 PF pro personality profile test and then they had they combined the the results they combined the results of the husband and the wife and get a compatibility score or what what did you call the score marriage compatibility marriage compatibility score and after we had done this ken told everybody okay look at your score a normal range is between 50 and okay over 65 and under 130 right he said that's a normal differentiation realm for most people. Well, David and I looked at our score, and it was above 300, like 320. <laughs> and afterwards, we went to Ken and Helen, and we said, what do we do with our score? And Ken and Helen said, well, you just have to be really accepting. Well, we are, and so that's why we have been married this August will be 19 years. So that's a testimony that, that it really works, this compatibility score. Dave and I learned a lot. We didn't realize that we were as different as we are. And so that was an eye-opening, and it helped us just truly be accepting of each other and our differences. And I kind of let him do his own thing in the areas where we're real different. I just let him do his own thing. I don't try to 
have him come my way and <laughs> and having a forgiving spirit yeah. yeah that that is so good because this couple and one other one in Miami that's the highest course we ever saw that's why it's so shock, so shocking but I'm glad to hear that you're still together and so is that couple in Miami they actually came up and became a helping couple for some of the other seminars that we had and gave their testimony. If we can make it, they said, anybody could because it's like night and day. But put them together and they complemented each other very well. So that's how these scores kind of work together on the personality assessment. And uh, by the way, if you have not, this is the book, the, the anchor book for that inventory that she's talking about. They're out of print. There's only 50, 50 that we received from Dr. Eldon Chalmers himself, and he was my mentor. So before he passed away, I bought the supply that he had. So this camp meeting, we're down to the last 50. I gave them to the Book and Bible House for these, this class uh, yesterday morning. So they're going to sell these over there, and uh, they're like gold. Uh, Advent Source was selling these for $14.95 plus uh, shipping until they were all gone with uh, Remnant Publications. So it's the healing of the broken brain. So I hope you have a chance to get those while they are still available because that's it when they're gone, they're gone. And then my friend, Dr. Uh, Lynn McMillan, for those who might have an anger problem or you know someone who has an anger problem, he has that Taming Your Tiger. I have... Uh, I think 10 of these myself that I usually take with me to, um, to have for people who have high stress and anger because uh, it can get to be a problem for a lot of people nowadays. We you know, Road rage out there, uh, short fuses that some people have, this type of thing. So now let me back up here, having gone through that. Let's look at how birth order uh, kicks in on these different uh, personality traits. Let's look at the... Per- Firstborn child, uh, firstborn female, firstborn male in a family, how they tend to grow up, and some of the uh, characteristics that follow the firstborn. And when we look at the, uh, you know, the, the characters in the Bible, we can see how these uh, attributes affect the individuals. We will find that most firstborns are more conservative than the ones that come along, like the lastborn. The firstborn uh, usually doesn't get away with hardly anything with the parents. The lastborn gets away with murders <laughs> compared to their siblings, you know. Uh, and we treat the children differently, don't we? You bet you, we do. We, had, we were in a Popka a church um, a few back, a Spanish church, and uh, we were talking about firstborn, lastborn, and during the intermission for Sabbath school and worship, this lady came up, she was a nurse. She said, I want to tell you, Pastor Brian, I have five kids. When the first one came along and got hurt, I, we rushed him to the emergency room. <laughs> you know? And uh, when the second one came along, uh, we weren't quite as concerned. But by the third one, when he or she got hurt, our first reaction was, hey, don't get blood on the carpet. <laughs> you know, this type of attitude. So we do treat our children different. And uh, it's just one of those things where we learn parenting as we go along. 
And the firstborn child, whether it's male or female, obviously tends to be more of a perfectionistic individual, usually more reliable, usually more of the CEOs and corporations. 23 of the first uh, astronauts were firstborn. Uh, mostly the presidents tend to be firstborns. Conscientious, more conscientious than, let's say, the lastborn. They are list makers and usually well organized. Now, yeah, you missed that when you came before you came in. <laughs> conflicted. <laughs> They're very conflicted. Uh, you can't have two captains on the same ship a lot of times. And uh, so that's where it takes a lot of understanding about the diversity. Which one were you, dear, in your family? You first one. Okay, that, speak, that speaks volumes right there. <laughs> Silence is golden now. Uh, firstborns tend to be very critical, serious-minded, scholarly, more goal-oriented, more successful in life, a high achiever, uh, an only child. They have a, a serious little situation when it comes to uh, finding a mate. Uh, sometimes they tend to be more critical, lonely growing up if they don't have friends. And if they do have friends, they're extremely important. I mean, you say to an 11-year-old kid, you know, we've got to move to Chicago. Oh, my friends. That's the first thing they think about, my friends. Um, peer difficult, super everything. Everything is super either one extreme or the other. Uh, super jewel pampered. A lot of times, uh, since it's the only child, they get pampered. One of my colleagues in Florida, she got married a little later in life, had a child, and uh, everything I see about that child, she being pampered, toys galore, uh, totally self-centered. Uh, they act like little adults a lot of times. They have this little inner rebellion that's going on. Then you have twins. Now, twins are like a family within a family. We have any twins here in this group? We do, okay. They're kind of like a family within a family and often referred to like that, the twins, the twins, uh, as opposed to the other siblings. Twins are like the family within the family and they're often referred the twins, the twins. And that stands out. The middle child may feel like they were born too late or too early. They just kind of feel out of place compared to the firstborn or the lastborn. And this middleness is difficult to define, especially if they are phlegmatic. They have trouble making decisions. They may live with uh, much indecision in, uh, in everything. The last born, of course, gets away with everything because now you've learned the parenting skills that you didn't know when you went into this situation. The last born, attention getter. They're like the uh, clown of the family. Uh, everything they do is cute. <laughs> Uh, not taken seriously, uh, and they grow up that way a lot of times, and they are just a people person, a people pleaser, and uh, sometimes they, they want to be the center of attention always. Dr. Kevin Lehman wrote a book about the birth order, and he's kind of noted for that. Uh, it isn't important where in the family you were born, the, your particular birth order only means that you have had a certain environment in which to develop. So that's where the birth order is. Now we turn our attention to behavior. And when it comes to our teens, our family members, oftentimes we focus on the behavior of a person rather than what's going on at the subconscious level in the brain. And that's where this book, The Healing of the Broken Brain, comes to bear. What really goes on in the behavior patterns 
It's like the tree with all the branches above the ground. But what's really going on is what's happening below the surface at the roots of the tree. And you can tell when the tree's dying. <laughs> Everything is not well up, up topside because what's going on down at the lower level where the roots are. And that's where the emotions are. Now, we've talked about the emotions so far this week. The behavior is one thing, but when it comes to logic versus emotions, which one's going to win, especially if you're in love? (laughs) The emotions. And that, my friend, is where a lot of young people make bad choices. Because of that, who is your worst critic? (laughs) You look in the mirror sometimes, you, think, you are your worst critic. There's a Ziggy, there's a little cartoon, uh, Ziggy, you've seen it in the funny paper. Ziggy is looking in the mirror thinking, Lord, I wish you would just destroy my worst critic. That's the picture, you know. And then the next picture you see, a little pile of dust. <laughs> uh, we can be our own worst critic, for sure. When we look at the various personality traits, this is actually the profile of one of those inventories. And I, I just, just to show you what it would look like if it came off the computer, that's it. <laughs> it tells you more about yourself than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> and sometimes you just don't like what it says. Now, Dr. Ellen Chalmers, the author of this book, he was my seminary professor and bless his heart, he passed away, and he became my mentor. He tested all the ministerial students at the seminary. Gave us the results in a group. And I just did not like what it said. You're certainly not intimidated by people. And it went on and on and on. Now, this is not mine. It's John Doe sample. <laughs> but... Uh, I took it, I read through it, I just didn't like what it said. I don't know how you reacted when you got yours back. <laughs> I didn't like what it said. I took it home at lunchtime. And uh, we lived in the Maplewood Apartments there on the campus at Andrews. And I took it home and I, I put it on the table like this in front of Helen. I said, read that stupid thing. And so I, I went off to the side and waiting for her to read through it. And she just kind of sat there. I said, well, well, that's you all right. (laughs) That hurt worse. (laughs) That hurt even worse. It was looking like it, looking in that mirror. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't get over it. But as I began to study the psychology, now there's nothing wrong with that word psychology. It's the science of the mind. It's been stolen away by the humanist. But it's the science of the mind. And Ellen White wrote more about the mind and the brain than she wrote about a diet and everything else. So I began to study under Dr. Chalmers. And I come to realize all these factors are very important. Some of them are inherited. Some are enhanced by what our lifestyle is like. What we eat. How we sleep. What we uh, don't do. Like eating breakfast and things like that. And then it it became more apparent that if we plotted these things out, like on a, on a graph between husbands and wives, and on this one up here, I know it's a little hard to see, but the X's are the males and the circles the female. And we put them on the same graph sheet, superimposed one over the other, 
And to get a marriage similarity, ideally we want two people to be pretty close together, but not just on top of each other all the way down. Uh, otherwise, one of you wouldn't be necessary, you know, if you're just alike. But we put them there, and we take the difference between each score, like 8 and a 4 is a difference of 4, squared would be 16. We do that all the way down, and then we total up the sum of the squares, and we put it over the number 65, which gives a ratio of similarity. That may sound a little more complicated than it really is. But we do that for each factor, and we come out with this marriage similarity ratio. And what we're trying to look for is anything that's 16 or below differential between each other, four-point deviation. You get beyond the four-point deviation, like this first one is up there, the A factor, remember, charisma, warmth. And I asked you, where do you think most pastors are on this charisma and outgoing, extroverted, and introverted? Uh, most Adventist pastors tend to be quite introverted. In fact, most of us tend to score one or two. <laughs> and that's very cool, the adjectives that refer there. And there's a, there's a uh, little graph back there, if you didn't get it already. It, it has all these little adjectives there. It's basically that green sheet put through the, uh, their, from their book. And if you have a, a 16 next to the uh, number there, you have more than a four-point deviation, and that's ideal, or less, four-point or less. When you get to a five, that would be like 25, or a six, that would be like 36 squared. So then you're looking at like night and day, as this young lady uh, just shared with us. So when we're looking at this differential between all of these factors, it's going to be how you communicate, your parenting style, how much of a leadership score you might have, how much of internalization you may have in terms of stress, how much external manifestation you have internal stress, because they're two different things. Remember I said there's free-floating anxiety, those people who are always kind of sitting around shaking their leg <laughs> like this, that's free-floating anxiety. But the people who sit like this very calmly and cool, and bless their heart, we had a, an older lady in Miami years ago at that time, to look at her, she was just as cool as a cucumber. But after she did the inventory, her stress factors maxed out. And I went to her privately and asked, I said, are you really this stressed? And she said, well, I guess I am. Because when the mission, mission board for sending Adventist missionaries overseas, they would request that you do this inventory. And they turned her down. I said, well, why? She said, can't you tell the stress? I said, yeah, but it certainly doesn't show. She said, I know. I know. That's the kind of stress you keep inside. That's the worst kind of stress for the heart and other areas. At least the person who has the free-floating anxiety, like the young couple getting married, <laughs> at least she was happy and the, there was something moving about the body. And uh, that's the uh, difference between having that internal stress, which is the worst kind, and the external stress. We had a, another young fellow who came to camp meeting in Florida. Now, we've done over 30,000 of these individuals during our family ministry. He scored a low C. Remember this low C on the, uh, on the chart up there or on that paper if you see it? You remember the adjectives on the low C? 
uh, affected by feelings, emotionally less stable. Now, it doesn't mean unstable. Emotionally less stable in that feelings get in the way of logic. He scored a one. His I factor, tender-minded and the need for tender loving care, ten. So when you have that combination, remember I said what hurts the average person this much is going to hurt this much for him. And his stress factor, the internal stress factor, was maxed out at ten. I called him aside because this was in a group. I called him aside. I said, your stress factors would raise a red flag if we were doing this for health reasons, coronary problems. Ah, that stupid thing. You don't know what it's talking about. You remember it has a faking good, faking bad score built into it. So we know the first thing a clinician would look at is whether or not this person was open and honest in responding to those questions, A, B, or C. Well, his was honest. I said, I'm not saying you are this way, but based on how you answer the questions and your responses, this is a heavy liability coronary. He poo-pooed the whole idea. You keep it. I don't want it. He walked out. The next year when he came back to camp meeting, he came over and apologized because a month after he left camp meeting, he had a quadruple bypass. And he apologized. And I learned later on, he went off and, to be a missionary uh, in Korea. And last I heard, he was still over there. <laughs> but uh, those are the factors that you want to look at in terms of your stress, your career, your marriage, your parenting style, and even sexuality, which we'll get to in just a moment. So the A factor, uh, happy-go-lucky, that warmth. Now, remember, this is where most of the pastors tend to score, down on the low side. Cool, reserved, detached, formal, aloof, impersonal a lot of times. But up front, you, you follow the job description. And so you have the birth temperament you're born with, and then you have your job description, the work temperament, obviously. Nurses and teachers and people who do people work tend to burn out unless they know how to cope and deal with some of these issues, especially on the C factor, which gets to be the emotional sensitivity of the autonomic nervous system. The B factor we mentioned yesterday, problem solving. Those people who do crossword puzzles and ink, you know, things like that. On the low side, um, very quitting. They're not challenged by problem solving. Um, less organized a lot of times, whereas the high B person, abstract thinking, they are organized higher morale, uh, they want to get things done, they want to be high achievers on the low side, they just kind of become more floaters. And it's not uncommon for a lot of young people to just stay on the low side. But remember, there are certain windows of time in developmental processes. If you don't take care of it when you're younger, the older you get, the more difficult it is to catch up, so to speak. Then we have the C factor. Remember, these are the inherited traits from the top down. And those inherited traits are very critical. Affected by feelings, emotionally frustrated, easily upset or perturbed. On the high side, logic overrides feelings. Emotionally stable, calm, cool, collective, and mature. Then we have the dominance person. Remember I said this is number one factor when it comes to 
marriage and divorce. People who have a high dominance, it's good up to a point, and then it becomes a liability, a dictator. Dominant, assertive, aggressive, stubborn, bossy, pushy, arrogant, and we could go on with a few more adjectives. These adjectives are weighted in descending order. So the first one, dominance, is more pronounced than assertiveness or aggressive. We know that people, women who have a high dominance and this high social boldness, the H factor we'll get to in a moment, those are the people who get along better with men in the workplace, their colleagues in the workplace, than they do other women in the workplace. On the low side of this E factor on dominance, we have people who are more submissive, humble, mild, easily led, and more accommodating. Push that factor too low, and humility, of course, is kind of one of the spiritual gifts the Bible asks us to be more like, but you push it too low, you have the doormat. You push the dominant factor too high, you have the dictator. So these traits, whether it's good or being high or good being low, the extremes is what the liability suggests. If you go to the extremes, you don't want to go there. Then you have the happy-go-lucky, like the little sanguine character here, a party waiting to happen. It was not uncommon when we did the senior class at Forest Lake Academy some years ago that I'd say 95% of the seniors scored 8, 9, or 10 on this happy-go-lucky. Happy-go-lucky. As we get older, that tends to come down. Now, if you were in courtship dating, for example, if the teens were here and they heard all this, uh, two people who have, two teens who have a high happy-go-lucky, that's great. But at some point, there has to be other factors that temper that and bring it back to the low side or on the average at least so that a person becomes more sober, serious-minded about life. More prudent, more serious, quiet, retiring, so to speak. If you push it too low, not a, not a whole lot of life out of life. You push it too high, it's life, 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 and sp- a certain spontaneity about them. They tend to be more careless, however, cheerful, and expressive. More of the extrovert-type personality. Then we have, now who would you say is more impulsive buyers, men or women? (laughs) Uh, Actually, statistics show that women are the more impulsive buyers. But who spends more? The men. You know, they go to the store for a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk, and they come home with a new truck. (laughs) You know. (laughs) So women spend more often with little ticket items, but men spend... (laughs) Less often with big-ticket items. And that's kind of the way that one goes. Now, you can't see it here, but I'm saying uh, it, it doesn't show up in white hardly there either. People who have a high A, a high F, a high E, and a high H, dominant, pushy, and have a high imagination and a, and a low discipline, they come home, they have trouble with finances. Now, if we had a couple getting married, these are the issues that we would address if one or the other happened to score with these characteristics. Brother, you're going to have a problem, most likely, if these things aren't addressed. It's not an issue now, but after the honeymoon phase, which is two months or two years, whichever comes first. Now, the kids at the academy say, what do you mean, whichever comes first? I said, that's the honeymoon phase. If you have sex relations before marriage, 
your honeymoon phase is two months. And uh, that's about it. And everything else is kind of downhill after that. And there's a reason for that, as we'll see in just a moment. But this impulsive buying habit, uh, unless you have the resources to finance and pay the bills, uh, that can get to be a real liability real quick. The average American, I keep hearing it from time to time on the radio or something, is uh, the average American loans eleven to $14,000 on their credit card. The average American couldn't write a, if they had an emergency, couldn't write a $2,000 check impulsively if they had to. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's just one of those things that, uh, you, you know, handling our finances is very critical. Then we have the conscientiousness. People who have this high conscientiousness do what's right because it's right to do. If you were giving Bible studies to someone and, and they happened to do the inventory, they had a high G-score here, they'd probably follow through on their Bible studies and finish them and you have them in the baptistry before you could say baptized. Uh, that's just the way they are. They have this high superego strength to be conscientious, to do what's right because it's right to do. On the low side, however, and I'd say uh, a good percentage of the students at the academy scored on the low side, and the rest of them, as a majority, scored way over on the high side. And the ones on the low side, uh, the teacher, one of the teachers there asked me, well, what, do you, what do you think that's the reason for? They don't really want to be here. <laughs> they just they don't want to be in school with all these rules, you know. And when they did that study about young people in the Adventist church years ago, what, what was the name of it? Yes, Value Genesis. They found out that, um, that these kids felt that the church was very legalistic. You know, the great majority of them felt that the church was very legalistic, do's and don'ts. And, um, and to some degree, perhaps that is true, but it's all about perception and where you live in terms of uh, family life and the like. But the G-score is conscientious to do what's right because it's right to do. And uh, on the low side, of course, a person is very expedient. Uh, I gave you the example of the couple that got married. In courtship, they went to church every Sabbath, you know, because he was dating her and courting her and wanted to get married. But uh, it showed up that her, her conscientiousness was nine and his was two, <laughs> which is very, very low, very expedient. And uh, I ventured to say to them before they even got married, let me tell you what might happen after the honeymoon phase. It's cold and raining on Sabbath morning. Which one of you want to get up and go to church in Sabbath school? She said, I know I would. He said, I think I'd just soon sleep in. <laughs> cold, rainy. She turned to him, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> you know? her, her perception of him had been just like in courtship and dating. I don't want to go there. <laughs> And, uh, you know, a year or so later, that couple had gotten divorced already. She complained to me. Uh, he became a couch potato. and didn't want to do anything, go anything, or have fun in life. And she was quite extroverted, but very conscientious in doing these things. Then you have the high pe people who are high socially bold. These are the ones who rush in where angels fear to tread. They get things done. They tend to be a little pushy sometimes, overly pushy. Uh, for the people who are more phlegmatic or more laid back. And they come to you and ask you to take this job or that job at nominating committee time, and, and your first reaction is no. <laughs> but and they won't take no for an answer. So they're uh, bold and venturesome and socially bold. They can take stress. Notice that word. They can take stress. 
They can give stress, too. <laughs> On the low side, they tend to be very shy, timid, restrained, threat-sensitive, stress-sensitive, very, very sensitive to things that happen in their environment, this type of thing. And now, some people have to be asked. I remember my church, it was nominating committee time. And uh, there was nobody that would take community service. Nobody. You know, we just almost begged. You know. And finally, one lady, one dear lady, she came to me and she said, Pastor Brian, I know it's a problem for somebody to take community service, but you know, Sister Jones over there, she'd love to do that job, but you've got to ask her. So I went and asked Sister Jones, <laughs> Oh, I, Pastor Brian, I'd love to do that. That's the way I felt. <laughs> but you have to ask. And sometimes it's, it's like the blessings from God. You have to ask. It's just like my stupidity for six months, Helen kept saying, you got to follow the book of James, chapter 5. Read the instructions. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church to pray and anoint you, and the prayer of faith will raise up the sick. So I live with that low heart rate for at least six months or more, and it kept getting lower and lower back in the 30s, and lightheaded and dizzy. And finally, I did it 24th of last month, and uh, two of my pastoral friends came. We anointed, had prayer, anointed with oil, and on the way home, my heart rate went back from the 30s up until the 60s and 70s, and I took my resting heart rate upstairs a while ago, and it was 68. <laughs> God has been so good. The next day after I woke up, it was like night and day, and I haven't felt that good in years. That's why I'm here today. Because Helen said, you need to call Carolina Conference and cancel this meeting that we're here today. Socially bold, venturesome, uninhibited. On the low side, you are shy and timid. But you got to be asked. And that's what God says. You know, There are many gifts that God would give to us. But you got to ask. Read the instructions. Factor I. Tender-minded. The felt need for tender love and care. This is the romance factor. Tender-minded, sensitive, refined, idealistic, intuitive, yes. Sensitive, autonomic nervous system, inherited trait, yes. Tough-minded, self-reliant, rough on the low side, a no-nonsense, realistic type person. You don't want to be there too long, too much. Now, suppose you have two firstborn that marry each other, and their I factor would happen to be a one or two. Very rough. Have a good sex life, <laughs> but very rough in all other areas because you can't have two captains on the same ship if they're both firstborn and they have a low eye. It's rough going, especially the demands they put on the children. Whereas the high eye, being a more romantic person, they live in more of an ideal environment, their idealistic ideology. So the I and, and, and the next factor go together. This is what I call the abuse factor. Now, Rick, is it you, the book you wrote on me, Rick? Yeah. Um, this gentleman here, I, I've been looking through some of his material that he's written over 17 years or so uh, on abuse. And uh, what I've read, Rick, uh, kind of touched my heart. Uh, Children who grow up without a father or a sense of abandonment, uh, all of these things um, come back to this, what we would call this factor L, 
Because whenever I find a, a person out of these 30,000 plus that we've done that has this high L factor, suspicious defensive posturing, it's like keeping people at an arm's distance. I've been a, I, I don't want to be hurt again. Now, we may not consciously think of it that way, but it's like, I've been hurt, I don't want to be hurt again. And the emotional scars are always there. They never go away. The pain may subside, especially with time, but the suspicious defensive posturing will stay there. It only comes about when our trust has been violated, some form or fashion, from childhood or even times before we could remember. It can go at the subconscious level. And because of that, a lot of times we don't know the pathology of where these things come from. It's just there. And we feel this defensive posturing in such a way that we are afraid to try new things or we keep people at a distance or we're together but we're not really together. When we talk about walking in the Spirit, remember I said walking and living in the Spirit can be translated the same way in the, in the New Testament from the Greek. When we're walking in the Spirit, I think of it like being with a lifelong friend that are so trustworthy between the two of you that you can sit an hour together and not have to say a word to entertain each other. You just feel good being in the presence of that person. I like to think of myself and the Holy Spirit the same way. That wherever I go, whatever I do, God has my best interest at heart. And He's looking after. Now, shouldn't that be the Christian attitude with the Holy Spirit? He's always with you. He's always there, and you may stumble and fall, but remember, God looks on the heart. <laughs> you know, David had it in his heart to build a temple, but he had troubles. We have trouble. But when we have been hurt, disappointed, or the trust factor has been violated, the ability to bond is greatly impaired. And I gave you the example yesterday of the, the, the duck out in the wild, maybe a fox run kills the mother and runs off with the mother and the little baby ducklings, uh, the ranger rushes in to rescue them, and they rebond with the ranger and kind of follow him all around now. And that's been known to uh, children who have a certain pet. Uh, they will somehow another bond. Uh, a goose, you know, they've had things like that on America's Funny Home Video where the, the goose would uh, actually follow a human wherever he or she went, because they bond with that person. But in the husband and wife relationship or male-female relationship, there's a certain bond that takes place that can never take place between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It's a different type of bond. Now, we all have friends. I have a, a Navy buddy that we, we just click right from day one. <laughs> it was like a brother, and uh, that relationship is so close. In fact, twins, oftentimes, when they, in the Minnesota uh, twin study that has been done, very interesting reading when you go and study the identical, were you an identical twin? Yes. Very strong feelings could exist between two identical twins. Uh, you can be in California and here in uh, North Carolina, and uh, if something happens, they've discovered that the, the other twin, the identical twin, will somehow another sense that everything is not well. I don't know if you've ever had any experiences like that, but they have 
now discovered that there's something about the, the, not the pituitary, but one of the other little cells in the brain that is almost like a, let's say, like a parallel universe for two people who are twins. And sometimes we may have a, we may live so close to our mate that uh, it's like whatever she says, you finish the sentence and vice versa. And twins, when they're like that, you can just see them on television when they're talking. They'll come out with the same sentence or the same words at identical time. And it's like uh, when you live so close to your mate that you, you are like that in spirit. And you are like that physically. And uh, you just feel good being in the presence of that person. And I told you how I missed Helen, you know, when I was on a submarine a <laughs> thousand miles away. It was so good to be back home and, uh, and just be in the presence of Helen and the children. So there's that camaraderie and that bonding that exists in the family. Unfortunately, we don't have a much of that today because families are, dis- I, w- I don't say disintegrating, but they are separating themselves because of iPads, and you see them in the restaurant. <laughs> I call- we called our granddaughter today, and... Uh, she was out eating with her friends in the restaurant on the iPads. They're talking with each other and to their friends. And uh, that's just the way our culture has moved now. Things are changing so fast. And most of us are, are old enough. You can remember what it was like 10 years ago or even 20 years ago when none of these toys existed the way it is today. So when these relationships go awry, it causes a pain. And you're going to pull away from that pain or you're going to try to deal with it where it's at. Now, some people, because of the circumstances in which they're in, like marriage, they stay in a very dysfunctional relationship because that becomes their comfort zone. And they don't step out of their comfort zone because maybe they're depending financially on this person. And so they suffer. And when that relationship finally does die or the demise of it, a lot of times they will turn around and marry someone else just like the person they separated from. And I told you, I know one lady had been married four times. Every husband had been abusive, alcoholic, and beat up on her. And when I asked her, I said, I don't think that's God's plan. Why do you stay with a man like that? And she said, I just love him. I felt like slapping her myself. The M score. People who have a high M. Very colorful. Imaginative. Live in a fantasy world almost. Imaginative. Absent-minded. Accident-prone. Yes, they are. Absorbed in inner thought. Sometimes to the point of being totally impractical. Far out ideas. Get-rich-quick schemes. You know, investing in chinchilla farms. Things like that. You know, way out, way out things. On the low side, very practical. They see finances either right or wrong, black or white. That's where it is. Practical concerns with down-to-earth issues. They're very steady and very dependable, extremely so. Another couple in Orlando, members of my church even, they had both been married twice before. This would be the third marriage for them. And uh, so we did the pre-marriage inventory to see just how they would match up. 
Obviously, they didn't match very well, but they went ahead and got married anyway. And this M factor was a primary concern of mine because he scored a 10 and she scored a 1. Now, <laughs> people who have this high M because they get, go for far out get rich quick schemes and they're kind of imaginative and absorbed in inner thought, very impractical, they don't have any money in the bank to speak of. <laughs> And so they, they are not that dependable in, in anything in life. On the other hand, the far extreme for the, the uh, M factor here are people who are very practical-minded. Now, he had this great idea because they come home with great ideas for the spouse, in this case, who has the money because they did get married. He saw this old house, and it was kind of like a... Halloween house, you know, where they decorate for Halloween. He had the great idea. He's going to take her money, buy that old house, and fix it up for her. Not a good idea. <laughs> she said, no way. You're not taking my money and putting it in that house. Well, love prevail. <laughs> Being quite imaginative and creative, of course, she did finally give in. He took the money, he did fix it up, and it was beautiful. That's where the creativity comes in. Because, you know, sometimes when you think of artists, when you stereotype an artist, they're a little bit weird. <laughs> you ever notice that? They can be a little bit weird, not always, but sometimes. But it, it, in that case, it worked out. Because he fixed up the house, and, and she loved it. But being very practical mind, you couldn't just look at that old Halloween type house and imagine what the finished product would be. An artist will look at a scene out there and a canvas and they see it differently than most of us. And they know where to put the brush and how to paint it. And so you ever seen the artist, a cartoonist just drawing things and they know how to put it on paper. That visualization comes to them. But otherwise they, they tend to have a problem with that. Yes dear? Uh -huh. And he started in the middle of the picture drawing the eyes and the nose of one of the characters. And I said, why are you starting there? I mean, how do you know how it's going to come out? He said, oh, I can see the picture already. I'm just putting it on the Good example. Yes, it is. Yes. Now, I want to get to the bonding, so I'm going to come, I'm going to come back to this one later on. But let me uh, run through here and get to the bonding process, because this is very important. Um, I may need to find it find that down here. There are 12 steps in this bonding process. And uh, I have found and discovered in my studies and uh, do you see it, Helen? I, here it is. There are 12 steps in this bonding process. And you might have to write these down because I don't have them printed out or anything. But uh, for young people, uh, when we move into the area of sexuality, now, these were the motivational drives for those who were not here the other day. There are ten motivational drives. Five of these are inherited. The other five, we are environmentally influenced and the like. Things that happen to us, for example, create the fear factor. The fear factor can go at the subconscious level. Narcissism is kind of self-centeredness in your life. But the two that we want to look at today is the drive for sexuality and the sweetheart spouse sentiment. Similar but different. Similar but different. This is the physical need for sex. 
And this is the sweetheart spouse, the physical, emotional need for support in a loving relationship. Okay, those two together. They, they work together, but they can be separately. Now, on these, we have, first of all, at the bottom, and of course, it's moving up if you can't see it. The first one at the bottom is the eye to body. Boy, boy sees girl, girl sees boy. There's something about the pupil of the eye when you see someone you like, whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, or you just are enhanced by that person, or something just takes you that you like that person. Because first impressions uh, can create a lasting impression. And there's something about the eye in which the pupil will dilate when you see this person. It's like an animal when they're frightened, they, their eyes get larger. And when we see people, and by the way, the eyeball itself is the same size when you were a baby as it is now. <laughs> it doesn't grow. Uh, that's why babies have such cute eyes. <laughs> now, when you see a person, that will dilate. It's like taking in more of this person because you like them. Then you see eye to eye. Two eyes look at each other and meet. Okay? So, first of all, you see the person and there's something about him or her that you like. The pupils dilate. If your eyes meet, the eyes are often referred to as the mirror of the soul. And so when the eyes meet, there's something about the gate of the eye that says, I like you. And then, that's why in certain cultures, like the Haitian culture, we were in Miami doing a seminar, and we talked about parenting, you know, you should get down where the kid's child is and, and look them in the eye and, you know, discipline them. Well, we were politely informed that in our culture in Haiti, you don't look people in the eye. <laughs> and so in certain cultures... You just, it, looking straight in the eye is somewhat forbidden. I mean, it, it happens, of course, but to, to keep the stare or the eye gate on the other person. Then you have the voice to voice. You speak to the person, and there's something about the tone of voice that will change ever so slightly. For a man, the voice will go down, just a slight DB, they call it, decibel. Okay, a little tone that goes down at a little lower level. When this happens, there's something about the voice communication between the two that again says, I like this person. And then the next step is the hand to hand. Now, you've per this doesn't happen all at once, but as you spend time with each other and voice and eye contact, then there's the touching of the hand. And when this happens... Um, a lot of things go on physiologically, emotionally, and psychologically. All of these be things begin to happen hand to hand. You might be holding hands and uh, sweaty palms for one or maybe both. Then you have the uh, hand to hand, you have the arm to shoulder. Now that's the next step in this whole process of bonding. I'll ask Helen to come up here. I'll show you what happened at Forest Lake. <laughs> uh, because the next step is uh, the arm moves. Now you've held hands, you know, side by side. You're getting to know each other, maybe walking or whatever. And you, at, the man gets enough bravery. He's willing to put his arm around her shoulder. <laughs> and when you really get to know each other a little better, the arms will drop to the waist. And from the rear, it forms an X, you see. <laughs> 
and like this. And when you see young people walking around and, and you see the hand is in the, in the dungaree pocket like this, you know, <laughs> you know the hand, you've gone too far in this sequence. They've gone too far in that sequence. One girl came to her teacher and said, can you believe what that pastor did to that woman? He said, that's his wife. <laughs> I was trying to illustrate that. So, and then after the arm to waist, then you are face to face. Now, this is where uh, you're close together. You're actually, when God said he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became what? A living soul. Now you're face to face. You're close enough where you're actually breathing each other's breath. When you make your next trip to Hawaii and they tell you, aloha, what? What are you doing? Aloha means breath of God. Did you know that? How many of you knew that? The breath of God. So when two people in the aloha culture of Hawaii, aloha means the breath of God. And how important it is when that relationship comes together. Now, I saw a picture the other day of this uh, guy at Loma Linda, the astrologist. Uh, He was showing something that I had never thought about before. He showed a picture of Saturn. Remember I talk about the the rings around Saturn out here? And uh, Mercury was in between here and the the sun so that the satellite, the... uh, satellite thing up there, shot through the rings of Saturn and the earth was a little tiny spectacle out here. And the, the astrologist, a Christian man, he said, on that little spectacle, and Ellen White often referred to the earth as a little spectacle in the cosmos. He said, on that earth is what they call the holy land. And on the holy, in the holy land, what they have? The holy temple. And in the holy temple is the holy, the holy of holies. And what's inside the holy of holies? And what's the heart of the, the Ten Commandments? And what's in the heart of the Ten Commandments? Sabbath. And when that closeness between the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is there... Oftentimes you will see Amen or Abba written in, the, in, the, in your Bible. Abba, Abba. What do we have? That closeness between the Father and the Son. On Sabbath. Abba. And that, that refers to that closeness. Or what we say, Amen. Very interesting. Then you have face to face this exchanging basically like Aloha. Then you have hand to head. Now, we don't let too many people play around with our head, do we? Your barber, beautician, things like that. But the head is kind of reserved for the privacy and the emotional components. When people touch, and you can see two sweethearts out on the park bench or whatever, and she might be tracing the outline of his face or something with her finger, there's a bonding that takes place. Now... From the hand to head, there is more of the intimate relationship develops at this point. And that's the hand to body. And this is part of where foreplay would come to bear. 
I don't see any children here, but this is kind of where the foreplay would come to bear. And steps 10 through 12 now becomes, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. And this is uh, steps 10 through 12. I'll leave to your imagination. Can I, can I do that? But that's what, what it takes place. Now, when this takes place outside the marriage, the bonding process is fractured. So much so that you don't marry that person that you had that first encounter with. You marry someone else. It's, and in today's culture, this has almost become a commonplace, like, almost like shaking hands or hooking up out there, they call it. Uh, multiple partners, multiple partners in the, today's culture and society and think nothing about it when they do the uh, surveys among young people. And they think nothing about it. So then, this ability to bond has been greatly diminished it's kind of like taking a piece of masking tape, men. You stick it, and it sticks pretty good. You can solve a lot of problems with masking tape. But when you strip it off, and you stick it somewhere else, does it stick quite as well? No. How about you strip it off here? Now you're going to a third place, and you stick it even less. Another place over here. Now you've had three, four, five lovers, and the ability to bond is greatly impaired. So much so that at the subconscious level, these people have a higher divorce rate when they do marry. When they do marry. So the bonding process goes on where there is both a physical, emotional, and spiritual connection. If you're all on the same, if you're on the same page. And if you don't have that type of bonding and relationship, it somewhat diminishes the ability to stick together. Now, they, in, the, in the animal kingdom, there are certain animals that mate for life. And I, I looked at all these uh, Canadian geese down here. I understand they, they mate for life. We have a lake behind our house, and uh, they come in every once in a while, and sometimes they'll take off and leave too. <laughs> and uh, those are the two that are bonded together. They mate for life. In the human species, that was the original plan. Because the scribes and Pharisees, you know, they were asking Jesus all these trick questions. You know, what do you say? Moses said, give her a bill of divorce. What do you say? And uh, what did Jesus answer? Indeed. But Moses gave that because of the what? Hardness of your heart. But it was not that way from the beginning. So we see today what is happening to marriage. And so much so, it's come down now where you can actually marry yourself legally. Uh, you have a wedding, you know, marry yourself. Uh, you could actually marry your dog according to the way the laws are today. So we don't know what all this is going to do. But we do know that there's a great falling away right near the end of time. And I think we've almost come to that point when you think things can't get, possibly get any worse. But what would have thought of, who would have thought of this 10 years ago? Remember, I, I told you what was happening back in the early 90s. We were at a church in South Florida, and uh, some, some gentleman between Sabbath school and church, he came up and just was mad with me that I would even suggest that there would ever be a time when men would marry men and women would marry women. And how could you present something like that to the church? And it made me feel about that high. <laughs> but look what's happening today. Those were the things in the making. So we have to live with them. Depending on where our temperaments, our personality are, where it takes us, 
That's kind of who we are in our personalities and the like. Be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of Christ. And when you go to Hawaii, remember aloha, the breath of God. Okay, I think uh, any questions on what we've covered so far? Yes? Um, prepare and rich. Most pastors have trained on the prepare and rich. In fact, we used to train all of our pastors on that. And that's kind of what you expect from the other person in a relationship if you wanted to come together. Um, pre- prepare and rich. Yeah, look it up on the Internet. It's there. Most pastors in all denominations have, uh, have trained on this uh, inventory. And we train a lot of the pastors in Florida on prepare and rich when we were in charge of family life. And uh, the difference between that and uh, what we use here with the personality is uh, this is kind of who you are minus the other person, whereas prepare is what you expect from the other person based on your needs and where, where it fits into all these categories. So all these basic drives, remember, it, first of all, it's what your awareness of that drive, and that paper is in the back on the table. The awareness of that drive, the, uh, the felt need to put energy into satisfying that need, kind of like thirst for water, and then whether or not it causes stress or conflict in your life. And when you add up all the stress where your needs are not being met, I mean, you can max out <laughs> and be very stressful, not even know where it's coming from. And we begin to substitute other things that would help us in those areas. I see we've run out of time. Remember this little character here. I know I'm somebody because God don't make no junk. Thank you so much for coming today. Have a wonderful rest of the afternoon and evening. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Remember on your trip to Hawaii. We'll see you over there. Okay. Okay. Um...